Father, we are so grateful that we have the privilege of being able to call you our Father. So many of us um, in this lifetime on earth have uh, been lonely. Uh, We've needed someone to reach out to, and we felt what it meant, at least we thought, to be utterly alone. But then through Jesus Christ, many of us who never really had a father to relate to, understood what true, amazing love is. We've come to understand what it means to be perfectly accepted. To have a love that means we can never be separated from you. And now as we walk and we love our Lord Jesus Christ and we seek to do something for him on this planet, we know we're never alone because we have a good, good father and we thank you for that. We praise you. Well, because of the festivities of the day, I do need to say that Laura and I are very, very honored to be here. Um, This has been a a big transition in our lives, and it's been a great transition in our lives. There's always, whenever you move from one place to another, from one group of people to another, there are always uh, pluses and minuses. We are just so amazed at both our good, good father, for how he has arranged things. And then also just the love and acceptance of this congregation. Um, It's sort of like coming home. It's really nice. So we thank you for that. So in my message today, I'm going to be talking about discipleship, or as some people refer to disciples as walkie-talkies. They get to walk and talk about um, uh, things that are important and, you know, in thinking about that, aren't you happy? I mean, who's the guy who named walkie-talkies walkie-talkies? Aren't you glad he didn't name other things? Because if he had, a stamp would be a licky-sticky. <laughs> a defibrillator would be a hearty-starty. A bumblebee would be a fuzzy-buzzy. A pregnancy test would be a maybe baby. A fork, a common fork, would be a stabby grabby. A hippo would be a floaty bloaty. And a nightmare would be a screamy dreamy. Uh, Anyway, we're happy you didn't do that, but we are going to be talking about disciples. Uh, One of the things that I was never able to do when I was at Dallas Seminary, because it was such a survival-oriented experience many times, was one of the courses they had there was a um, course by Dwight Pentecost called um, The Life of Christ. And he's written a book to that effect. And I was never able to take the class, and people told me the class was great. And then there was some time in my walk where I just felt like it was time to do some work. And so kind of what I'm going to be talking about today is a portion of what I've been studying in the life of Jesus. But it's at that time when I picked it up, I didn't realize how germane it was going to be to what the Lord would be leading me to do in terms of discipleship. And so that's going to be coming out today. We're going to be talking about the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And... I'm going to be presenting the Sermon on the Mount very naturally, I think, from the text. Uh, 
you may have heard teaching from one angle or another, and I'm not, you know, I mean, anybody who teaches a sermon on the mount uh, has all the blessings uh, of the Lord and because of the great truth that's in there. But I'm going to be presenting it very um, kind of plain sense and straight up in terms of, I think, uh, for me, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus orienting his disciples. I think it's Disciple Orientation 101. And uh, so as we go through this, I'm gonna, what I'm doing is basically laying the groundwork for some other messages between, I think, um, October 14th and the end of the year. Um, I have some messages in there, and I'm actually going to be teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. What I want to talk about today is the occasion, the purpose, and the guise involved. So kind of orientation, but I think it's really important. Um, I think this sermon is very, very crucial in Jesus' ministry, and I think for us too. I mean, we want to have a relationship with God that's vibrant and constantly growing. And God takes it very seriously that we're his children. And he invites us to a lot. And the more we give, the more we get. And so at this juncture in Jesus' ministry, um, he felt like he needed to give an orientation to the guys. And so what we're going to do then as we go is just um, talk about what was happening at this time. Now, there are some verses up here you cannot see and you're not designed to see those. But I'll tell you what they are. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give the occasion for the Sermon on the Mount, although Mark leaves it out. And so it, it kind of is a building thing here, and I'm gonna, I'll read some of this to you. It's in Matthew, it says, But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against Jesus how to destroy him. Now what Jesus has just done is healed the, the guy with the withered hand. And as you know from the text, it was a setup. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was a setup. They wanted to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. And when they did, they made the executive decision. They took counsel, we have to kill this man. And in Matthew, it says, Jesus aware of this. Jesus was aware that these men were planning something. He was aware that something in time and space had taken place and it was an important thing. And Matthew just goes on, and he withdrew from there, and many followed him. Mark has the same thing. He says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, also from Judea. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. So, in this event... When Jesus realized these men, the Jewish leadership, now had it in their mind to put him to death, he left there and he called the twelve. This, is the, this was the crucial deciding point when Jesus said, I need to call the twelve. And then Luke adds to it, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. Luke is the only one who tells us that on the night, or on the day that Jesus chose the twelve, he had stayed up all night on the mountain praying. 
And then in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount comes at this crucial time in the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at it just a little bit more. But the reason I have these verses up there is when you put all three of these together, and this is really right out of Dwight Pentecost. This has nothing to do with me. But when you put these together, you see the crucial timing of all of this. Jesus knows something has changed. The Holy Spirit and the Father have alerted Jesus to the fact that something different is happening now, that he is being wholeheartedly rejected. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves there. He takes from this pool of disciples, 12 men, and he sits down with them. And I think gives them their orientation. So, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to talk about this again, but I want you to see some of the, just the flow in this. Now, you know the, uh, with a group like this who know the Bible so well, I feel like I can, uh, uh, you're kind of up with me. John the Baptist came and Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Okay. And then he goes to the temptation experience. The Spirit leads him out, in him, and he basically, um, if you listen to Pentecost and some of these guys, he was out there 40 days because he wanted to smoke the devil out. Because what is happening is the Son of Man, the ruler, the future ruler and eternal ruler of mankind, is dealing with the present ruler of this present age. And Jesus is showing his superiority to him. Well, I have that asterisk there because this is a crucial event in the life of Jesus. He comes back from the temptation, and he goes directly back to John the Baptist. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very next day, he's standing with two of his disciples, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And they take the initiative, and they follow Jesus. Here's a pattern I want you to see. Conflict or crucial point in time. And the next thing Jesus does is he starts assembling disciples. Because who follows him? Um, Andrew and that other unnamed disciple who we all think is John. And then Andrew goes out and he finds Peter who is down there, Bethany across from Jor- the, um, on the Jordan down by Jericho. On their way back to Cana of Galilee, he puts his hand on Philip, and Philip says, hey, I know a guy. And he runs out and gets Nathaniel. By the time they get to Cana of Galilee, Jesus has six guys. So they get up to Cana of Galilee. Um, we know what happens there. The next thing that happens is a Passover. Now, Jesus' ministry can be basically timed by four Passovers. Passover at the beginning Um, where he cleanses the temple. We're going to be talking about another Passover. The third Passover he probably didn't go to. That's when he fed the 5,000. Then we know about the last Passover where he also cleansed the temple. So three years of ministry. This Passover is a very important event. Um, From this Passover, this is basically the one where he says, destroy the temple, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. These guys never forgot that Jesus said that. From that Passover, he goes back through Samaria, the Samaritan woman. He goes to Nazareth, and in Nazareth, he's in Nazareth two times, this is the first time, he is soundly rejected 
by the people he grew up with. In fact, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it even says that he went to his own his own home and his own people received him not. Now, the reason this is so crucial in Jesus' life, being rejected in Nazareth, is because he fulfilled an important portion of Scripture. He says to these people, Today, this Scripture from Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. And within about 15 minutes, they are driving him out of the city, leading him up to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. Another crucial moment in Jesus' life. Now, if it was you and me, if our friends and neighbors and people we grew up with treated us like that, we just, I know I'd be a wreck. I'd have to go to John for PTSD training and debriefing and, and holy moly, I don't know if I could ever get myself back together. But you know what Jesus does? And this is interesting. Notice that has an asterisk also. He goes back down to Capernaum and he climbs in a boat and he teaches. And then he looks at Simon and he says, hey, put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Simon says, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing but at your word. I will let down the nets. And they enclose a shoal of fish. The nets are breaking. Peter dives down to Jesus' knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. From now on you're going to be catching men. Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. The next thing he does is he goes and he officially calls Peter and Andrew in James and John. So, after that, they go on a preaching tour. And the preaching tour, nobody knows how long that took, but it ends basically with healing a leper. Because Jesus told a leper, go to the chief priests and show yourself to them. And he didn't. He went and publicized what Jesus had done. And it said at, after that point, Jesus could no longer enter towns Cities and towns, because everybody knew about his reputation, they would just mob him right before he got there. So Jesus had to stay out in the wilderness. Again, Luke tells us he prayed, and he winds up going back to Capernaum, where um, some guys opened the roof and let a leper down. Uh, I'm sorry, a paralytic down. Also a crucial event in Jesus' life. Because the people at, this, at, at, at Peter's house, when this happens are the Pharisees and, and religious leaders who have come from Jerusalem. This is them checking out this rabbi. And they've come from all Judea and all Galilee. And they want to see who Jesus is. And you know that crucial moment, right? Where he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And they go, oh, this is blasphemy. And Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And the minute Jesus said that, it put all of these guys on red alert. The Son of Man, the eternal coming King from Daniel chapter 7. And so what does Jesus do? He heals them. It's an amazing event. So the next thing that happens after the paralytic is he goes out and he calls Matthew. Why does Matthew come to Jesus? The only thing I think 
is that Matthew was in Capernaum. He must have heard Jesus teach. But here's the thing that Matthew knows about Jesus, is that Jesus is willing to stand up against the authorities. Jesus is willing to welcome sinners. And whatever is going through Matthew's heart and mind, it says that he left everything. Now, he probably had a German gene, so he probably did the papers, you know, in order, and he left a couple things here. may have even left a post-it note for whoever took over for him. But he left He just left it. And then he has a party. And at that party, um, he invites all of his sinner friends to get together with Jesus. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Kind of another important event. According to the writers now, the next thing that happens is the second Passover. This is John chapter 5. Now, the reason I'm giving you kind of this background in some respects is that, especially when um, you're reading the Gospels, like, how long did it take Jesus to arrange all of this? How long did he wait? How long did he uh, kind of peer into the souls of these guys who were following him uh, before he really called the twelve? Well, you can see two dates there, two Passovers. A year had passed. And it is after that Passover, which is an amazing chapter in John. Chapter 5, make your hair stand up on end. They're going back to Galilee. And the disciples are walking on the Sabbath. And they're taking heads of grain. And they're massaging them in their fingers. They're breaking the husks off. And they're eating the grain. And the, the Pharisees are following them. And they say, it's not right to do that on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, he goes into a synagogue. Matthew lets us know it was their synagogue, these Pharisees who were following him, and they set this thing up so that on the Sabbath will Jesus heal. Wow. Jesus confronts them. It says, it says in the text that he burned with anger because of their hardness of heart. And after he heals this man, the Pharisees get together with the Herodians, and these guys were not friends, but hey, uh, my enemy's enemy is my... I, I forget the art of war stuff, however that works, but you get the idea. Let's kill him. And Jesus leaves. And when he leaves... He goes up on the mountain and he prays. This is a crucial moment. And he calls to him 12 men. And comes down the mountain. After the 12 come to him, I don't know what he said to him up there. He comes down and he says the larger group of disciples met him there. You realize there was also a larger group of disciples. There was a selection process here. In Acts, when Peter... When they go to select somebody to take Judas' place, Peter says, it has to be somebody who was with us right from the beginning. They had two guys who had never left Jesus' side. And so these two guys were right here too. But Jesus chose 12. He comes down and here's the group of disciples. And he looks at them and he sees all the people coming because they know about his power. They want to touch him. Jesus goes back up on the mountain. He sits down on a level place. His disciples come to him, and he looks upon them, and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the reason I've gone into all of that history 
is this was crucial. This was like, it, was, it wasn't maybe the official rejection, but Jesus understood what was going to happen now. And here's the application. When everything goes kaput, and the toaster burns a toast, when the going gets tough, the tough make disciples. That's what Jesus did. And I think it is always a good idea to copy Jesus whenever possible. You know, there are a lot of things happening in the world. There are a lot of things happening in our lives. There are a lot of things going on. And you know, sometimes it's just hard to focus. What do we do about it all? When the going gets tough, when everything goes kaput, when in doubt, do what Jesus did. Make disciples. When he had to face off against the devil, what did he do? He went down and he got disciples. When he got rejected at Nazareth, what did he do? He went down and he got disciples. When the Pharisees didn't like the idea that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, what did Jesus do? He went and made disciples. And now at this point in his life, it's like the Holy Spirit has just said, here's what you got to do. And Jesus knew what to do. He chose 12 men and he brought them together and he said, okay guys, here's the orientation. Now. Now we're going for it. And you know, so what does that mean? I think for us as people following Jesus, I think disciple making just needs to be up there. I mean, it's sort of our commission and everything. So that if large boulders fall from the sky and great cracks appear in the crust of the earth, what are we supposed to do? Make disciples. That's what they're going to do during the tribulation. It's going to be the last time of harvest. The 144,000 go out. People are going to trust Jesus Christ. And what are they going to do about it? Hide? No. They keep making disciples. So, what about if um, politics in our country go kaput? It could happen, right? It could happen. What are we supposed to do? Oh, God, help. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. And the reason I put this here in the toaster burns is just simply this. I think for many, many Christians, and I have seen this. I've seen this in Germany. I've seen it here in several states. Their lives are so overwhelmed with daily maintenance. I mean, Satan just keeps them down by causing the toaster to explode and the wheel bearing to go out. And holy moly, the Holy Spirit spending all of his energy trying to knit them back together again. That isn't why we're here. Those things should remind us that there is something more important. And you know what we need to do? We need to make disciples after we knit ourselves back together again. I think... That following Jesus on this planet means that when the going gets tough, we realize, as our Savior did, we need to invest in the lives of people around us so that they will have the life of Christ in them, so they will duplicate him, so that they will keep going. So, looking at how the sermon came to be, Jesus had a year with some of these guys. And you, you think... Jesus' ministry was only three years long. I'm sure he must have been sweating it. Why in the world did he wait a whole year? Because he was following the Father. 
And the father told him, must have told him he had plenty of time. He waited until the right moment. And now, after a year, he assembles the twelve. Now he's only got two years with them. But Jesus still pulled it off. So, if you remember nothing else from this message, when the going gets tough, the tough make disciples. Now, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? I think, just reading it plain sense, going through it, is Jesus is giving an orientation to his disciples because Luke is the one who tells us he lifted up his eyes upon his disciples. But imagine the panorama. There are thousands and thousands of people further down the hill. And Jesus is sitting with this group of men, the twelve probably right in front of him. But they can see the thousands and he's equipping them so that they can minister so that they can carry on his message of redemption after he's gone. I mean, it must have been a moving sight. I would have loved to have been there. And this orientation, I think, has to do with three things. I've mentioned before that, and that's why I have that verse up there. He called them to be with him. He called them to preach. He called them to have authority. And I think in the Sermon on the Mount, you get all of those things. Spelled out in various ways, but um, they're all there. The first thing is to be with Jesus. These men obviously were with Jesus. And I just want to tell you, uh, in terms of disciple making, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, it is relational. Why are we messing up in the United States? Why is everybody saying we're having a hard time making disciples? We don't spend time with people. And we're getting worse at it ever since we got iPhones. Thank you, Apple. We don't spend time with people. We're becoming isolated. That word with is a big, big word. I think that disciple making is more caught than taught. You can give people lectures, you can take them through programs. But what do I remember as a young believer? I remember spending time with the guys at the chapel that I went to. I mean, these elders were not super guys at all. I mean, Lord knows, right? But I was in every one of their homes. And when we had Wednesday night meetings, we broke down into groups and we prayed. I was in their groups. I mean, I get to sit with an elder. (laughs) I mean, I'm just this, this little geeky Danny guy, you know? And you know, no offense to Dan, you know. But anyway, I got to pray with elders. Wow! They knew who I was. I knew who they were. And, you know, and I, I don't know any other way to explain this. I mean, I think I learned my love for the Word of God because they were in love with the Word of God, in love with Jesus. I mean, they talked about the Bible all the time. Wow. And they witnessed. I know they witnessed. I don't think they witnessed good. I mean, I know one guy. I mean, he was so stiff you could have surfed, you know, surfed with him. But um, they witnessed. I know they tried. It was cool. And so when I came out of that assembly, I thought that was the standard. I thought being on fire for Christ was like everybody's on fire for Christ until I went to Trinity College. Then I saw something else. But it it warped me. Discipleship is more caught than taught. We need people to be disciples, to follow, and get 
people in there with you. Is it any, is it any wonder to you in the book of Acts when the apostles finally, the disciples finally get online? You know, I mean, these, these guys are like domino, uh, dynamos, not dominoes, dynamos. And um, in Acts 4, it says the Pharisees looked at them. Chief priests and Pharisees looked at them and they realized that they were uneducated, common men. But then they recognized they had gone to Jesus Theological Seminary. GTS grads. Or maybe they went to Jesus Bible Institute. That's not what it says there. You know what they did? They got together with Matt Chandler and Francis Chan, and they took the Jesus course. That's what we do nowadays. We do Jesus courses. No, they said they were taught by Jesus. They realized they had been taught with, by Jesus. Eh, that's not what it says. They had been with Jesus. With is so much more powerful. With is so much more powerful. They had been with Jesus. And the first thing you do in making disciples, I am learning is you have to shepherd people to be with Jesus. Unmultitasking time, sitting at his feet, in his word, allowing the Holy Spirit to work. And that's what Jesus is going to be teaching the boys in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to teach them to preach. These guys were already verbose. Andrew, first thing he does is he goes out and he gets Peter. Philip, the first thing he does is, hey, I know a guy, probably a New Yorker, goes and gets Bartholomew or Nathan, Nathaniel, whatever you want to call him. These guys were already willing to talk. Matthew invites friends to a party. And I just want to say this. Our teaching is important, but our teaching has to have output. Why are we doing all of this? We are doing this so people can witness and share with lost people about Jesus Christ. The teaching has to have an output. And we are meant to be witnesses in the world. We teach so that we can rescue the perishing and care for the dying and snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. To weep over the erring one. I mean, that can be here. And lift up the fallen and tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Mighty to save? Wouldn't that make a great title for a praise song? Right there in Fanny Crosby, who knew? But the output of our lives in praise and adoration to Jesus Christ is to talk about him. And let me tell you this. I am more scared in many respects than you are. And here's the thing I know. Unless we're in groups together, and I think disciples are always in groups, encouraging one another and strengthening one another and having each other's back, we're not going to do it. We are just isolated thunderstorms. Now, you put all those isolated thunderstorms together, boy, and you have that thing out in Carol, you know, going off in Carolina and might be coming into the Gulf. And my backyard's already wet enough, but I don't want to talk about it. Anyway... We isolate ourselves, and therefore we have no strength. And we are not getting the job done. We need to preach. We need to tell people about what Christ is doing in our lives. And then to have authority, right? One verse among the Plymouth Brethren that is like the top verse is where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in their midst, right? 
I mean, I heard that thing. I think that was the first verse I heard coming in the door. Now, I've lived long enough to realize that that's often an excuse that is made for small churches. Well, there's only two or three of us, but Lord's here. Well, maybe two or three of you because you don't know what to do in the harvest. I don't know. But the point being is that verse has to do with authority because when Jesus uses it, he says, if two of you on earth agree on anything, my Father in heaven is going to do it because of the harvest. If you bind the sins of any on earth, they will be bound in heaven. If you release the sins of any on earth, they will be released in heaven. And man, I still do not understand it. But what I do know is it is authority. And we have the authority to make disciples. And I think when we get in these groups and we get together as a church and we really focus on this, we realize that we have been really empowered to get the job done. And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, it is going to be talking about authority and where that authority comes from. And then, I just very briefly want to talk about the guys. Now, here's the deal. We we know the guys. And discipleship, obviously, is a very broad thing. Because even with Jesus, he spoke to multitudes. But from these multitudes, certain people came forward. Kind of like, you know, if you're looking for gold, right? You've got to shake the, shake the thing. And, and certain men would come forward. Certain women came forward, too. You realize that Jesus was followed by women, too. Um, and then from that, Jesus made other selections. And you get down to the twelve, but... You not only have the 12, but you have three of those 12. And then two of those three that Jesus put a lot of weight on. So there's, it doesn't mean that there's, there's anything bad, but it's just like who is ready to step closer in commitment and time. And, and it's not a judgment because I, I don't think God puts any pressure on anybody. But it's just noticeable, and you have to talk about it. So what was it about these guys, these 12 men? Um, in John chapter 1, you, you meet them. They, were, they had already left their careers, four of them at least, maybe five. I don't know about what Philip was doing. But they had gone down 75 miles south. They weren't working. They had become disciples of John the Baptist. They were already showing something. Um, in, in Luke uh, chapter 5, where he calls Peter and says, from now on you will be um, catching men. It says, they brought the boat full of fish to shore and they left it. Now, I'm a Milwaukee boy, but I think if you don't refrigerate fish right away, bad things happen. They left a boat full of fish. They should have at least turned around and tried to make that liquid, right? No, they just left it. And it says, he went on from there and found two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And both was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets because they had broken their nets doing all this. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father. If it had been my dad, I would have heard him for the next quarter mile. You no good. No, but Zebedee, I think, was a better guy. Because actually his wife, who is Mary's sister, followed Jesus. But they left everything. Luke 5, 27, when he called Matthew, 
He left everything. So what is it about these guys? Their willingness to leave. And I'm not going to spell that out for you, but I think what that means is where your value, where your spiritual perception is. Or maybe you just get fed up and you're just ready to to invest deeper into Jesus. You know, because it's sort of like Christianity is kind of one of these things. I hate to say it, but it's like Mr. Miyagi when he's talking to Daniel. He says, karate, yes. Karate, no. Karate in the middle, eventually, <laughs> squish like grape. And, you know, some people try to live a half-hearted Christianity, and I'll tell you, half-hearted Christianity only gets you half-hearted results. But it's sort of God working with us. They were willing to follow. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to obey. They were still very rough. And the thing is, and this is what I want you to see here, is that in terms of discipleship, I mean, there were other guys there who were following Jesus too. But it's like he takes us where we are and he takes us as far as we're willing to go. And that's the question we need to ask. Where are we right now and how far are we willing to go? And I'm, I'm just going to use Paul as this last example here. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the Apostle Paul, you think that it, it seems from reading the Bible that Paul went from zero to hero in like five seconds, right? One minute he's on his horse and he's going to Damascus to arrest Christians. The next minute he's his blazing disciple of Jesus Christ and he's unstoppable. Now, if you're reading a one-year Bible right now, you're either having conniptions or conundrums. Because in Galatians, Paul says when he was in Damascus, um, he left for three years and he came back to Damascus. You don't see that in the text because Luke doesn't tell you, but Paul says it happened. What that means is that when Paul went into Damascus and he started preaching, he realized he needed an adjustment of his theology. Paul needed some real reworking, right? And in Galatians, he said he left Damascus for three years and came back, and that's when they let him down in the basket, and then he went to Jerusalem. I know, when they told me that at Dallas Seminary, I couldn't believe it either. It's like, what? Paul needed to be worked on. He needed three years. And then Paul says, after I saw Peter, I didn't return to Jerusalem again for 14 years. The space of this in your Bible is 17 years of Paul's, actually 17 years right here. Because at the end of Acts 11, Paul goes back to Jerusalem with Silas and with Barnabas. What does all that mean? God had to work on Paul. Paul wasn't ready either. Paul had things he had to get over. You think that Paul all of a sudden started loving Gentiles two minutes later? Of course not. In 2 Corinthians, when it talks about Paul's several beatings that he got... We don't have a record for all of those in the book of Acts. When Paul talks about his shipwrecks in 2 Corinthians, the one at the end of Acts hasn't even happened yet. He got shipwrecked three times that we have no record of. That happened in those 14 years as God was molding him. Here's what I want to say to you. Where are you? Is God working on you? 
See, because that's the important part. When I hear a guy say, I feel like a dweeb, and I don't feel like I'm committed enough to Jesus, and I know I'm supposed to love him, but I'm, I, I just really don't feel like I'm there, I'm going, yes. Because God's going to work on you. If you have that realization, are you in trouble? Because now he's going to start working. It's harder to work on people who don't have the realization. So, in terms of talking about discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount and everything, it's going to be the orientation. So, I'm just asking you, where are you? Are you ready to get oriented? Or do you need more time? If you do, beg God to work on these areas in your heart that you feel like you need to work on. The time, the commitment, the love, he'll do it. And it may not be through shipwreck or beatings or, but who knows. But anyway, maybe it'll be through another Harvey or something. We don't want that to happen either. I don't need that in my backyard. The Sermon on the Mount is for us. So that we can learn how to be with him. We can learn how to reach out so that we can learn how to have that authority. And here's the deal. If you want to be like Jesus, when the going gets tough, the tough make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you for the honor. It is such an honor to know our Lord Jesus Christ. But as it says in Peter, it isn't just an honor of um, uh, getting to know him, but it's also the honor of being able to serve him and to do as he did and to um, be able to um, shine his truth. It says in the Sermon on the Mount, one of those first verses after the Beatitudes, you are the light of the world. And all of us can be light wherever we are, at whatever place in our walk we are. But Father, I know that some of us really want to shine brightly. And so I know that you're going to help us do that. We just thank you for your love, that you have put your hand upon us and saved us by your grace. And now we pray you would just teach us, even this week, to continue walking closely with our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.